Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Jay Weiser. Jay is a consultant. He specializes in helping leaders find their superpower. He's a catalyst for leaders to find those superpowers. And those leaders are thriving in uncertain and disruptive times. Some of that might sound a little bit familiar. Why is it that you're unable to respond appropriately? Are you unaware of what's going on inside your organization, outside your organization, within your partners, within your customers? Are you caught off guard? Why are you stuck in firefighting instead of long-term thinking? Do you find yourself stuck in a rut? Do you find yourself fighting for the status quo, unwilling to unlearn? Do you find yourself up against a hostile board that's against any change and transformation, and your brief is to grow. You've got to enlist all these people. Should you have seen these problems coming? What are you doing to ensure that you're aware of how you're contributing to the impact that you're having on others? Are you even aware of it? And why don't you have time? Are you unclear about your definition of success and your people's definition of success? Are they aligned? So we're going to be exploring topics such as these and it's going to be a, a challenging conversation because it's this is, I think, far too important for leaders to be comfortable. I've given Jay the brief to come with both barrels locked and loaded and ready to pull the trigger. <laughs> so I'm going to encourage him to hold up the ugly mirror and make you uncomfortable because you need it. I'm going to be blunt. The next few years are going to require leadership. And if you're not it yet, you're going to have to become it pretty damn quick because 2024 according to the Kondratiev wave, which is the economic cycle that the Russian economist has been predicting depressingly accurately, suggests that 2024 is the climax of all the uncertainty really kicking off. So you've got about a year before it all peaks. And now is the time to prepare. So it's time for some difficult conversations. Jay, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Happy to be here. Excellent. So would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on your history, please, so people understand what you do and who you do it for and what qualifies you to have this conversation? Sure, sure. I'm not. <laughs> Ever since I was little, I was always curious, always asking questions, finding out how things worked. And that's really carried throughout my entire career. I've always looked to understand problems where they came from, how they happened. And that got me into engineering in business as an undergrad. And engineering really introduced me to systems thinking and understanding how different parts of an organization, how different parts of a system work together, how they impact each other, thinking about ecosystems and environments. The, the second thing, I started my career, first quarter of my career was in banking and corporate lending. And what I learned in that process is anybody can put a beautiful spreadsheet together where everything looks hunky-dory until it <laughs> doesn't. And I remember exploring my first credit that I was supposed to review. And the vice president came to me and said, okay, here's the deal. Here's the company's projections. I just need you to review it and give us your okay so we can move to credit committee. And I remember digging into the numbers and I'm like, okay, I probably need to understand the business more. 
And I started talking to analysts. I started looking at the different drivers to the business and red lights started going off that everything they said was going to be in their favor was not necessarily in their favor. The customers they were targeting, the regions they were going to be operating in, completely different. How did your systems thinking contribute to that? Because I'm 100% with you. Uh, I think sellers absolutely and leaders uh, need to be systems thinkers. So in this case, it was actually a chain of nursing homes. And here in in the U.S., depending on what state you're in, if you're on Medicaid, which is kind of like welfare, each state has different reimbursement rates. So if I'm in New York, it might be, let's just say, $100 a day. If I'm in Alabama, it might be $40 a day. So if you have a large population of patients on welfare and you're in Alabama, that's not going to work so well. What you really want is more private pay patients because you can charge them a higher rate. So the states where they were expanding into were not going to be ones that were favorable. And there were issues about them, how they were acquiring different businesses. So the rates come into play, the patient mix comes in, the cost of staffing, all of these things interact. So you have to look at all these things in play together. And you also have to look at demographics in terms of, you know, is this market growing? Is it shrinking? How is that going to work? Okay. So for those of you who are relatively junior sellers or who are used to being quite transactional, What I want you to take from the last couple of minutes is the depth and the level of detail and research that you can get into that will inform you as to what's really going on in your prospect and your customer's business, because you need to be their ally. What they don't need is some peddler of snake oil or some pusher of tin. What they need is somebody who removes the risk in their decision for them, who ensures that they're back is covered and that they feel safe knowing that if something went wrong, you would cover them. And the problem is that almost no one tries to create deals that if given the choice a hundred times in a row of signing the exact same terms, both parties or all parties would instantly and willingly sign up to those terms, then you end up creating a downstream problem. You're just waiting for a fight to happen. And there's an old Persian proverb, which is better an early war than a late peace. And I think (laughs) far too often our lack of effort, our lack of attention is the problem here. So let's look at a couple of the blind spots that leaders might have. And let's start with those because um, I I think it's in instrumental in helping them see the contrast between what good and what average looks like. And the difference is stark, but simple. Yeah, when you think about blind spots, there are a number of them. Because first of all, I'll talk about alignment first between (laughs) a leader in in the rest of the organization. So a big part of my discovery process when I'm working with an organization is I ask four questions. The first question is, if you're successful three years from now, if your business is successful three years from now, what does it look like? How do customers talk about it? How big is it? Who is it serving? So get that picture of the future state. Second question is, 
from that point three years out. So 2026. Second question is, what were the three or four things you did to get to where you are? Third question, what obstacles did you have to overcome? Fourth question, how ready are you today to go on that journey? So I'll ask that of the CEO. And I'll also say, does the rest of your team agree with us? Oh, of course. Then you go and talk to the various executives. They have a different picture of where they're going. They have a different idea of what they need to do. More often than not, they probably feel they're a lot less ready than the CEO does. So it's bringing those discussions together, synthesizing that so issues can be framed and discussed because they're hidden under the covers. If they're not addressed, they're going to blow up later. And as one client said to me, there's nothing worse than bad news late. And again, I I think you've touched on a very, very raw nerve that I suspect many people will be feeling, which is that ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. Ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. If you want (laughs) mismatched expectations and to then be disappointed because someone didn't read your mind because you as the leader lacked the foresight or perspicacity to be able to actually explain what it is that you intend in a way that everybody understands identically, then as soon as you go to your first layer of leadership, you already have people working at odds with one another, and that's on you. So can we just spend a little bit of time about messaging and clarity and what the role of the leader is in terms of communicating what the overall job to be done is? Let's bring that into into play. Well, I think it's important to be clear on direction in destination. So it doesn't mean you have to prescribe everything everybody has to do because that's going to vary based on the conditions things are going to move. We're in a a dynamic environment, but we need to know what's the direction. Are we going north? And what's the magnitude of change we're looking for? What are the dimensions of that change? So for a leader to say, oh, our strategy is to grow by 20%. Okay, well, what does that mean? 20% more customers, bigger accounts, more relationships, more transactions. Each one of those tells a different story and requires a different set of actions. So unless the team is clear on what those dimensions are. I had a client that was in the pharmaceutical research business. And everything they did was transactional. They were one-off deals, and they wanted to become a solution provider end-to-end in the whole drug development process. Well, that required different types of behavior. One of those was getting the different parts of the business to work together. Instead of only selling their piece, they need to, to work more as a continuous flow versus three distinct silos where you make something you mean like the customer perceives the company as one thing instead of three silos yep who knew (laughs) okay so tell me this then you've got leaders who 
are clearly forthright. They've got, they've managed to climb their way to the top of the greasy pole. But then they're giving unclear direction to their people. And there's this ripple effect that goes through the organization. So presumably, they're being blindsided left, right, and center. If we were to hold up the ugly mirror to the audience, what would you suggest would be the indicators that would point you to the answer to what am I not seeing? I think part of it goes goes back to the communication. It goes back to an environment where people can be curious, can be asked questions to get at that clarity, can work across organizational boundaries. Pretty much everything today, when you're dealing with a complex challenge, requires some degree of collaboration, whether that be across department, whether that be with ecosystem partners. Identifying what that shared outcome is, one. Two, having some principles. So I I very often talk about rules versus principles. Rules work very good when we're talking about safety, when we're talking about compliance. But when you're in a dynamic environment, if the situation doesn't fit the rules, the rules don't have the answer. So saying, well, that goes against policy or we can't do that when the customer is like, well, why not? Well, I need to talk to my boss. I need to talk to my my manager. I need to go back to the handbook. It's more about principles. If a principle is do what's right for the customer, well, that's pretty straightforward. So if you're in a situation, you ask yourself, what's right for the customer? If you have a set of rules, if this happens, do this. If that happens, do that. Well, what happens if it's not in the rule book? So having that shared outcome, having those principles kind of sets up the guardrails. So then an employee or a leader downstream can stay within the guardrails. They can make their own decisions. They have to think they don't, you know, it's not acting like a robot. Robot. It's not just a binary, do this or do that. It's use my head and think about what is the right solution given this situation. Well, again, I think one of the big challenges that we've got here is that people don't think, they don't spend enough time reflecting, and they don't spend enough time asking the question, well, why is this happening in the first place? I look at the ripple effects of bad decisions, and one of my favorite bits of research that a client of mine, Jay Allen, did for his master's thesis suggests that three bad decisions in a row is enough to kill a company in many cases. In fairness, I've also seen it happen with sales careers and management careers. Three bad hires in a row, one you kind of get away with, but two or three, you're just beginning to wonder, do they have any idea what to look for? And, uh, you know, salespeople making three bad decisions within an account, you know, they they hide something. Then they have to remember what they hid, and then they lie about it. And then they get caught in the lie, and then they justify and defend instead of taking responsibility. And before you know it, that's the end of the relationship. And so often, I think leaders get stuck in preparing to fight the last war. And we've seen it with AI. Undoubtedly, the same things happened when the facts arrived and probably the smoke signals. They overused it to the point where it became useless and deafening. And I I think we've got this tendency to look for the first answer that seems to solve our problem because we're in such a hurry, we're firefighting. And we forget the rule. When you've come across a great uh, solution, keep looking. 
part of what you're saying is people get very reactive. So you're, you're under pressure, you're under stress, you get hit all of a sudden with the baseball bat and you react. Somebody says something, you react. You don't think. If, if we think about all the disruptions we've had, and it's not just since COVID, I mean, it goes back even before that, I mean, you think about disruptions like Kodak, Blockbuster, Nokia, AOL. Those are sometimes competitive things. You think about 9-11, the Great Recession, all of the credit issues that banks have had. These were all things that were hiding in plain sight. So part of it is, you know, are we paying attention to all of this? <laughs> I, th- I think, you, well, it's that paying attention, it's that being aware the second thing, you know, you talked about bad hiring decisions. Well, bad hiring positions usually come out of not knowing what you need and not knowing what you're trying to achieve. Because if you start off by saying, okay, what is going to make this position, what is this position going to contribute? to the organization? How are they going to help? Then the second question becomes, does a person have the capabilities, the mindset, the attitude that can work within the organization to make that happen? So if you're hiring to fill a seat, that's a bad approach. If you're hiring to drive towards an outcome and you think about it that way, that is a far better approach. You touched on something that's really important because the single highest hidden cost in every business I've ever worked in or worked with is wrong hires. And you make wrong hires because you look for the wrong things. And there's a really good clue that you're looking for the wrong thing because you copied and pasted the job description of the person who failed in the role. And then you go out and look for another one of those. That is insanity. But that happens to be the way virtually everyone builds a job description. You need to start from the job to be done, like Jay said. And how does this role contribute to the outcome of that job to be done? Everyone in the business has a role to execute their part in delivering that job to be done, whether it be growth, whether it be expansion of accounts, whether it be satisfying customers or delivering value to shareholders. But there is a job to be done. And the leader's job is to make it clear what everyone's part is in serving that. I think part of that, too, is not just thinking so narrowly, because it's also how that person contributes to the success of the other people on the team uh-huh. and in the organization. So it's it's not a maniacal focus on it's something very a discrete goal, but it's part of a larger part. It's not just about making that single sale. It's about building Absolutely. that relationship. It's about building something that's sustainable over time. Anybody can put lipstick on the pig and make it look pretty, but at the end of the day, it's still a pig. You're so right, but there's this question about whether the decisions leadership are making have really been thought through. One of my favorite questions of any seller and leader is who pays the negative price for your positive payoff? And where a leader, for example, says, right, we need to get all hands to the pump and bring in anything you can this quarter, 
that sends a message that it's okay to put the buyers under pressure. But they're not really thinking about what the consequences of this are, because the ripple effect when people feel pressure from a leader is they probably will exaggerate the importance of getting any one deal in, and they may start to push the boundaries of what is morally and in terms of in line with your values as a business and a brand. And the net result is that you end up getting the result, but you've actually asked your salespeople to trade their reputation in order to make one quarter's number. I challenge any leader to justify being uh, willing to push that kind of pressure down the organization without the clarity of saying it's unacceptable to force a customer onto our balance sheet in order just to serve our need and not theirs. I think it's a couple of things here. One is short-term thinking versus some balance between short and long-term, number one. Number two, sales is only one part of the process. Having salespeople promise things or make deals that the rest of the organization can't deliver on, that's not sustainable, that it's not just thinking about, did I make the deal, which is one piece. It's about, did I serve and set up the relationship for success? It's the interaction with the customer, but it's also the interaction that I have in the rest of the organization. Very often, salespeople look in it as what's in it for me. They're they're individual contributors. They're not thinking about the whole organization. Very often, bad behavior is tolerated to get a result. It's up to leadership to say, okay, do we have, you know, what are our values? Are we actually going to live by them? Are we going to tolerate bad behavior? Bad behavior breeds more bad behavior. If we don't you know, put that stake in the ground and talk about what we're about, that you know, in today's environment, there's a lot of discussion. You, know, you think about a sustainable business, meaning a business that gets good results over time can deal with a variety of different disruptions, uncertainty, can handle the waves in the market, whether it be a war for talent, whether it be inflation, whether it be some geopolitical crisis that's going on in this whole mess that we're all working in. Is it somebody who can uh, think about being CrossFit? You know, I can do things in good times. I can do things in bad times. I can bounce back. I take charge with my people of a particular situation. Or do I say, oh, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. I can't do anything about this. And it's that resilience and robustness about what is and isn't acceptable. And getting people to, to fit, you know, fit that balance between the long-term and the short-term. And more often than not, too, that leader is talking about that number. They need to reach that quarter because they're getting that from a leader above them. That number 
will actually be hit on the basis of what was started six months ago, a year sure. ago, 18 months, two, three years before, when the buyer is in the passive looking phase. And problems don't just happen in most businesses. They evolve and then they come to a head and yep. because they are systems. And again, I'm so pleased we had this conversation because it's making my day. The reality is that you've got inputs and outputs into a, a system. And a system that has uh, blockages in terms of the input is going to struggle because the stock will become depleted or it'll get old or whatever. And if there isn't enough outflow, then you end up backing up. If there's too much outflow, then you end up with inefficiencies. Now, you know, you think you have to think as a seller and as a leader in systems. Buyers don't buy your product discreetly because they want to buy your product. They're trying to get their job done. And if you don't understand the context in which these people operate, you can't see the interconnected dependencies and the interdependencies, sorry, between the different moving parts. So marketing being successful with a 3% click-through and a 15% conversion rate means that sales has to pick up a load of really terrible leads that they have to follow up, most of which will never buy. So the business incurs cost and admin and opportunity cost and distraction. And the salespeople, because they're under pressure uh, to hit a quota, then do anything they can to hit a quota. So they sell to people they shouldn't. They sell to people at the wrong time and they create a churn risk and they create tickets downstream for customer success. And then that affects finance later. And all of this is in the name of serving shareholder value. But that's because you're putting the cart before the horse. Shareholder value is a byproduct of lots of happy customers coming back and being profitable. Shareholder value is a byproduct of having highly engaged employees who want to give massive discretionary effort, work together towards common purpose, and serve the customer so they keep coming back. Salespeople, yeah, same thing. Not, none of this is rocket science. And instead, we complicate it by putting our agenda before trying to just get out the, the hell out of the way. Why? You've touched on a couple of things. One thing I want to go back to when you were talking about sales and marketing and each of the pieces, I mentioned earlier about systems. So instead of thinking of mechanistic systems, these are living systems. These are ecosystems. If we measure and track and reward people for the wrong things along the way, don't be surprised if you get the wrong output at the end. So if marketing is being measured by the number of clicks, then they're going to do whatever they need to do to get the number of clicks. But the issue isn't clicks. The issue is qualified clicks. Are you going after the right people? And if sales is measured by how many calls they make versus the quality of the calls and how do we improve the quality of the calls? I mean, you think about what's the process? What are the true drivers? of the business that are going to move the dial. A lot of times we measure activities and people get busy. Busy does not mean we're making progress, 
but it feels <laughs> good. It feels good to be busy. I look busy. My boss thinks I'm busy. It, that's not necessarily productive. So it's understanding the drivers and how do you create the conditions to achieve that, to get that end outcome. The, se- the second thing you said is that shareholder value is a byproduct of all these other things. But some people set out that goal or our goal is to make X this year. Instead of thinking of what needs to happen or what's the mix of things that need to happen to achieve X. Mm -hmm. The third thing in terms of jobs to be done, if you throw a disruption in, that job to be done can change. So if your client, let's just say, I sell food to restaurants and I sell in bulk and I sell it packaged in a particular way. And that presumes the restaurant is up and operating and people are coming into the restaurant. Well, what happens now if people aren't coming into the restaurant, they're ordering takeout? How does that change the assumptions for the volume of food that I'm delivering, for how I might package that food for additional supplies the restaurant might need in order to do takeout? Or I can be the salesperson that just says, push, 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 you need more napkins, you need more forks, you need more food. No, 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 no. What I need actually is individual containers. I don't need you selling me plates and metal knives and forks. I need you to help me solve the problem I'm now facing. And that goes back to, again, being aware. So how do I help the customer achieve the result they need to achieve in the environment that they're actually working in? Everything is today contextual. And if you're not paying attention to that context, you're going to make bad decisions, period. Uh, and you're going to be a terrible salesperson if you're not paying attention to the customer's context. Uh, one of my partners, Moeed uh, Amin, uh, interviewed 420 plus CFOs. And every one of them said that um, if you come understanding and knowing my company, you come at two, uh, you start at two out of five. If you know my company and the context in which we have to operate, you start at four out of five. Why would you not put the time and the preparation in? Because the context makes all the difference. Your product may or may not be relevant. And also the context may open up non-buyers who are currently adjacent to your market and there is no competition. There are so many ways that you can really build resilience in your business. If only you stop and think and reflect and you ask better questions such as, what am I not seeing? What if all we could do to improve was subtract? What would we stop doing immediately? What would we delegate? What would we do less of? What would we outsource? Because very often what we find is over time, we get into the habit of taking on low value activity and confusing being busy with being effective. And often, The metrics that we put in place as leaders determine who we end up hiring. And so we end up creating this vicious cycle 
where we end up creating transactional leaders who hire transactional managers, who hire transactional sellers and transactional marketers, and then they get transactional customers who are looking to buy on price. Yeah, I mean, that, that becomes, you know, a race to the bottom. And, and I think part of this, you know, it gets entrenched. Yeah. You, you get yourself into a rut. You walk a path long enough, you start to build, have a gully and you're stuck in that path. And you don't think, mm, well, maybe I should go this way. Maybe I should go that way. You get people that are unwilling to adapt and adjust. I was attending a webinar uh, not too long ago, and it was about curiosity and the per and you know this idea of you know asking why and asking how. Those are strategic questions. Why am I doing something? How do I need to do it? Why should I do this over that? Versus, I just, I just saw your, your, your comment about, you know, a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked up. That's beautiful. But, but it, it's this idea that, you know, this unwilling, oh, that's what we're talking about, curiosity. So the person said, what's the opposite? of curiosity and we're thinking well you know not being curious and he said conformity then mm. we conform instead of asking why does what we're doing still make sense and it's the recognition that it's okay to change it's okay to adapt it's okay to challenge because if you're operating from the perspective of the leader is always right. And that's the way the leader thinks. And if the leader is wrong, go back to rule number one, the leader is right. Well, that doesn't work so well in an environment where the leader is wrong. And it's, you know, it's, you move from command and control and hierarchy to you don't just want one person thinking you want the group thinking when 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 let me i want to share something in thinking about strategy i was in an organization and we talked about oh the leaders understand strategy and i said okay you need to communicate this throughout the organization and they're like well you know, it was a supermarket business. So if we told the people on the front line what our strategy is, they tell everybody else. And I said, okay, so think about this for a minute. You can tell them what the strategy is so they know what to do. Or you can decide not to tell them and leave it up to them to decide what to do. In which case, you've got at best a 50-50 chance of them making the right decision. So if they don't know, you're actually leaving it up to chance. If they do know what the strategy is, if they do know what the values of the company are, then they can make an informed decision. So it's breaking out of that thinking that the top do the thinking and the bottom people do the doing. In today's world, everybody is going to do the thinking and the doing. Well, it's insane not to, but let, let's just uh, spend a moment defining strategy, because you touched on it earlier that 
the strategy is not that we're going to reach X tens of millions of turnover by this date. That's an aspiration. That isn't a strategy. Numbers on a spreadsheet are not a strategy. What is? There are so many different definitions that people get caught up with. I think the strategy, you think about where you're going. So you need to have a destination, some direction. It doesn't need to be a fixed point, but it's it's a direction. Strategy is what are the choices you're going to make for how you're going to achieve that? What will you do? What won't you do? What type of environment will you have? The who, what, where, and when are tactical questions. If you can't answer the why and how first, if you can't answer the why and how first, then the rest of it really doesn't matter. And it's also thinking about how are you going to execute? What technology do you need? What capabilities do you need? But that's only in service of that larger objective. And it's thinking about the different stakeholders along the way. And, and I think the other thing that's, that's very interesting, and I, I go back to early in my career, and I remember in business school, and you'd read this thought leader and that thought leader, and everybody had their singular solution. And I remember thinking to myself, why don't these guys talk to each other? Because if you take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you can find something that's right for that particular business, that particular customer, versus you know everybody saying, oh, okay, when Jack Welch was big, Six Sigma, Six Sigma, Six Sigma. When Hammer was big, re-engineering, re-engineering. Well, re-engineering isn't a strategy. Six Sigma isn't a strategy. It's that integration that becomes much more effective because there's not a single problem we're dealing with. It's a system. So, so it, to summarize, if I'm getting it correctly, it's how do we get from X to Y by when? Well, it's figuring out, one, you said X to Y. So what, what is Y? And defining what Y looks like. Yeah. It's understanding where you're starting, where is X? And if X and Y are stable, hmm. I can find multiple paths to get there. But now, if we throw obstacles in the way, going from X to Y is not a straight line. It might zigzag. It might go back and forth. And now, at a, now at a level of complexity, X is moving. Y is moving. Yeah. So part of that strategy has to address how do I handle that? There's a lovely model um, in Paul Stoltz's book, The Adversity Quotient, called CORE. I love it as a pain discovery model as well. And it stands for control, ownership, reach, and endurance. So what do you control? What don't you control? What do you believe you should be in control of? What can't you control? Why is controlling it important to you or not controlling it important to you? Who is able to respond? Who is responsible? Who owns the problem? Um, who owns the ripple effects? Okay, that moves us into reach. Who else is affected positively or negatively? If you do a good job or a bad job, 
how are you being affected by other moving parts within the business? And then uh, endurance. How long have you put up with this shit? How much longer are you willing to put up with it? Okay. Are you willing to change? Is it even important enough for you to do something about it? Because from the, off the back of those four questioning areas, you can build a really solid understanding of reality. And the problem is that most people, when their brains are being hooked by the urgency and the firefighting, their brains switch off because they don't have the plan, they don't have the preparation, and they haven't practiced for those moments. So let's bring up these five leadership superpowers, because I have a suspicion we may have touched on uh, many of them already. Um, but let's try and bring this all together now. So with the five leadership superpowers, going back a few years, and I'm th I was thinking to myself, why are all these companies being caught off guard? You know, they've been, a lot of them have been very successful. The businesses are working, they're humming along, and people get blindsided. They get caught off guard. They don't see something coming. They're, they're not prepared. They're not ready. And if you think about this, uh, you know, this is going to tie into the strategy question as well. Let's say I'm planning a family vacation. Yeah. And I'm going to, so in the coming week, I'm going from Atlanta to Edinburgh. I have my vacation planned, my hotel planned for Edinburgh. I know what I'm doing on each day. So now let's perceive on Sunday, I fly out. And all of a sudden, for some reason, we can't land in Edinburgh. We land in Amsterdam. Oh, and all of a sudden, the plans blow up. I can yeah. say, oh, crap. What do I do now? We can't have our vacation. I can immediately become the victim and talk about how awful it is. Mm -hmm. Or I can say, what was I planning to do? I was planning to have a good time with my wife, visiting a variety of different places, hiking, walking, blah, blah, blah. Well, how do I apply that now in Amsterdam? How do I adjust? The fact that I already spent money for a hotel, too bad. I still need some place to stay. I need to figure it out. What are my values? What was the purpose of the vacation? How do I adapt? So. Part of your thinking, and this goes back to the superpowers, first of all, is being a present futurist. It's not just thinking about the present. It is about thinking about what could the future look like? What trends, what things are happening that could impact me? What signals? How would I react in different situations? Well, being a traveler, Knowing all the geopolitical stuff that's going in the world, there are a whole host of reasons that that flight can get diverted. <laughs> Am I ready to think differently and to see things differently? That's number one. Number two is, and going back, it's present and future. It's not just one. You have to think about and integrate both to inform your decisions. Two is the tension between experience and learning. Well, the fact that I have experience 
and in expertise because I've studied Edinburgh. Well, you throw that into Amsterdam and you're like, oh, well, it's not Edinburgh. Well, that doesn't matter. If all you're relying is on your experience and expertise, you're in a bad place. If you're open to learning and curious and the moment you know you're going to Amsterdam, you pull out your phone and you start looking about what what can I do in Amsterdam? Be curious, be willing to adapt. Invite my wife to say, well, what types of things would you want to see? This is what Amsterdam offers. So it's that experience and learning together that help you work in that different place. Three is about being a prepared risk taker. Every business decision involves some level of risk. Whether you do something or don't do something, there are risks on both sides. It's about being risk intelligent, being thinking about risk. They're interconnected. There's a whole portfolio of risks, but you can play to win or you can play not to lose. If I'm playing to win, when I'm in a different situation, instead of winning in Edinburgh, I think about how can I win in Amsterdam? So it's that adjustment versus saying the risk of a flight diverting. Well, if I don't want a flight to divert, I drive in my car and I'm limited in terms of the number of options to where I can drive to. But if you're going to fly, there is some risk that you're taking. And it's that preparedness is being risk aware. It's, you know, maybe you pack a few extra days of clothes because you know something might change. You prepare for contingencies. Doesn't mean you're prepared for everything, but you're thinking, okay, if I end up someplace else, you know, I use my credit card, I have backup so I can adjust. That's being a prepared risk taker. Fourth is being a strategic executor. So it's balancing strategy and execution. It's recognizing that the two things are tied together. One of the things when disruptions hit, folks focus on the present. What do I need to do today? How do I execute today? What they sometimes forget, and this happened during COVID, particularly with the airlines, is they don't think about the future. And the decisions a lot of airlines made at the the outset of COVID impacted their ability to recover later. They didn't think about how do I protect my future? The decisions I make today impact the options I have tomorrow. If you close doors today, that is going to impact how you can recover. So it's that balance of strategy and execution. The fifth superpower, which which I think forms the foundation for a lot of these, is being an accountable collaborator. It's the ability and recognition that you need to work across the organization, across departments, that breaking down those silos, because that's the only way you're going to solve a problem. That if you one department can't do it alone, you can't grow revenue with just sales. 
You have to provide service. You have to have the operational support. You have to have the systems to support that and maintain that and keep customers and so on. So it's about teams, but the second part is teams can be accountable and recognizing it's accountability for outcomes. And just like you talked about responsible, it's accountable. Are you enabling and empowering the people to do the work you're asking of them? So if you think about those five superpowers, present futurist, experienced learner, prepared risk taker, strategic executor, and accountable collaborator, each one of those supports and informs the other. So ideally, a leadership team has proficiency in all five. If you have proficiency in all five, you've eliminated a lot of the blind spots because you see things sooner. You can act faster. You can adapt. Let's just say if I'm not a prepared risk taker, well, I'm going to get caught off guard. I'm not going to be able to adapt. If I'm not an experienced learner, when conditions change and I just you know, put my head in the sand like an ostrich because I don't want to know anything else. Well, you need to ask those questions. Leaders in today's world cannot and do not know it all. They have to learn it in a lot of cases. The insanity of it all is having a command and control structure, especially now that you know, we, we are a pretty educated workforce, by and large. But we are a pretty educated workforce, by and large. And the challenge, I think, is that often we under, uh, underestimate the quality of our people. One of the companies that I spent the last three years working with helps to train managers to move from a command and control management style to a an operational coaching management style and they train them to do this in bulk um together and the low end of return on investment when you enlist the managers to enlist their people is 72x and this was a study done by the uk government and the london school of economics we recently did another project with 32 managers in a software company. They spent about 35 grand, something like that. And they've got 17 and a half million back in six months that the managers attributed directly to the change in their behavior where they enlisted the involvement and the ideas and the thinking of their people. And the number of times when you speak to managers and you ask them, so when you ask your people for their thoughts on this, and they say, well, I don't ask my people. Well, why not? Well, it's my job to run things. No, it's not. Your job as a manager has two lines on it. Hire great people and create the conditions for them to be great. That's it. It's not really that complicated, but you overcomplicate it by adding reports and meetings and pushing people under pressure instead of enlisting their brilliance. I mean, you hired them for a reason. If you hired poor talent, then that's on you, not them. A lot of what you're talking about, I mean, it's, it's a shift in mindset. You know, one of the first things Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. We've been punched in the face multiple times. And sometimes we just keep on standing there and getting punched in the face instead of ducking and weaving and changing. Yeah, we, yeah, the ring. 
Well, I mean, I mean you, you think about companies who every year we do an offsite, we have an annual plan, we put an operating plan together, we lock it in, and come hell or high water, that's what we're going to do. Well, in a dynamic, constantly changing environment, that doesn't work. You have to adjust. You maybe have to have a more dynamic plan, a more dynamic budget. It's more about preparing than planning. It's moving from the leader as know-it-all to I have to learn it all. It's moving from a leader saying, my employees are not interested in getting better. They just want to come in, finish their work, and go home. Whereas most employees, if you start to talk to them, would want to be more enabled and empowered, would want to upskill, will want to do what's best for the company if they're empowered and allowed and enabled to do that. There was, that, there was a study of the S&P 500 from 2010 to 2016, and they, I think it was Gallup, and they um, measured the performance difference between companies with highly engaged employees versus average engagement and low engagement. And what they found was the companies with highly engaged employees performed better than average performing businesses by these factors. 500% higher profit per employee, shareholder value. 120% higher productivity per day per employee, shareholder value. Fewer headcount required to get the same amount of work done. 316% annual compound share price growth and 40% reduction in absenteeism, sickness, and conflict that involved the law or tribunals and all that kind of stuff. Now, it does involve a shift in thinking, but if you were truly trying to serve shareholder value, you would look at most of your systems. And and so here's an exercise that none of you are going to do, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Your Amber Alert list is anything that has a failure rate of one in two. Okay, so if it's 50-50, you need to put it on review, and within three months, you have to improve it by a minimum of 50%. Okay, anything that has a failure rate of one in five, okay, that goes on to the red alert list. Uh, Sorry, a success rate of one in five, that goes on to the red alert list, and within one month, that must be improved by a minimum of 50%. And the people who are closest to it, i.e. the people who have to suffer it, have to be the ones running that project. And then there's the blacklist. And the blacklist is anything with a 1 in 20 success rate or worse. And you stop spending on those activities immediately. You down tools and you work out why the hell are we spending this amount of money, effort, and time on something that only yields the result we want, 1 in 20 or worse. Now, when you apply it, unfortunately, that is almost every marketing motion, almost every sales motion, and almost every recruitment activity, and virtually everything that you do in measurement. Because what we need to do is start with a blank sheet of paper and ask the question, well, if we really wanted to build a great business, what would it look like? And how do we get to there? Instead of faffing around worrying about all the things that are wrong, why don't we try and work out what it should look like and work towards that? And that's one of the reasons when I talk about starting with that future state of knowing where you want to go. 
Yeah. Because if I start there and work backwards and think about how I get there, you're going to come up with a different solution than saying, okay, this is how we do things now. Yeah. How can we incrementally improve, which is a much longer path? It's not about incrementalism. It's about transformation. I think, you know, the other part, you, know, you talked about shareholder value, but I go back to something you said, that is the result yes. of other things over time. Yeah. It's about employee engagement. How do I get my employees engaged? How do I involve them in this so they have a vested interest? So they are able to do what's right for the customer and deliver not just shareholder value, but you, you got to deliver customer value first. Yep. And in doing that, that will drive shareholder value. And notice you say shareholder value, not this quarter's revenue or profit. Mm. Shareholder value is about sustainable value over time. The other piece of this is moving from heroes, individuals, to teams. It's about moving to, instead of playing individual competition you know mm -hmm. who can run the fastest who can swim the fastest who can throw the farthest to thinking about well we call it soccer you call it football it's not about heroes it's about does the team win or lose in order to win or lose you have to score points it doesn't matter who ran the farthest during the game. It doesn't matter who ran the fastest, who kicked the furthest, who had the ball the most time. All of those things get in the way of winning, of scoring goals. And the team either wins or loses together. It's moving to that team mindset. The team is accountable for scoring and winning, period. If the team only only focuses on defense, they'll never score. They have to focus on scoring and deep offense and defense together. And I, I think you've touched on something really critical here, which is that um, the leader needs to ensure that there is alignment across the entire value chain. Creating any form of ambiguity at the leadership level, so the CEO's direct reports, then means that politics and ambiguity filter through the bottom. The metrics will then drive uh, individual departments to believe that they are succeeding and they will succeed. I remember I worked with one company when I had my telemarketing business and marketing generated three million pounds worth of their uh, leads, or sorry, spent three million pounds developing 10,000 leads for the sales team. The sales team spoke to one of those leads because they didn't believe marketing. At exit, when they sold the company, they sold for a six times multiple. So that was 18 million that sales and marketing's lack of communication flushed down the Swanee, and they failed to follow up on 9,999 leads. I mean, it was insane. And we need to have leaders who see their business as a system, join them up, and create cohesion uh, or create the conditions for cohesion. You mentioned at the beginning, how important it is to ensure that um, you know we're aligned around the values. And one of the most interesting things is uh, I had an interview with Tom Shodorf, who took Splunk from 34 million to 1.3 billion in five years. 
And one of the things he did was he had an operating rhythm, which was all about clarity of communication. One page defined every communication he ever had over that period. The other thing was that he ended up firing very quickly the two top performing salespeople because they were not a cultural fit and they were not willing to adapt to the new way of doing things. And as soon as they left, morale increased because it sent a message that just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean it's tolerable. And leaders need to stop tolerating the intolerable in order to play favorites for a few people who drag them over the line because of their lack of preparation. If you're scrabbling around for pipeline or for uh, revenue this quarter, it's because your sales team and your marketing team failed to do their job 12 to 18 months before, whilst the customer was passively looking and didn't even realize they understood that or understood their problem. Because when they move from passive to active looking, and you've got a dozen relationships and advocates, that's different to turning up and trying to peddle product when they're really not that interested. Whereas if you've aligned with their strategy, if you understand what they are each trying to accomplish and you understand the moving parts and you understand what they're frustrated by and what they're afraid of, by the time it comes to defining the requirement, there is only one show in town. And you don't have to do any selling per se. The customer's buying. They're telling you exactly what goes into the proposal. And everyone else has to try and catch up with you. It's not really that difficult, different from leadership. If you are clear and you work with your people towards common purpose, and they are enlisted in this, they will give you massive discretionary effort. If you bully them, brutalize, lie to them, of course, they're going to try and get even or get out. And in this market, you really can't afford to be losing good people. In this thing here, what I wrote down was you can fill the bucket or drain the bucket. And the more you fill the bucket, it's contributing to, you know, kind of like that trust account, whether whether it's with an employee, whether it's with a customer. If they know you're working in their best interest, they will trust you. They will will support you. If you deal with everything as a transaction, you know, I do this, you do that, then that's all you're going to get is that transactional effort. If you people see you as being we-centric versus me-centric, that drives a lot of different behavior. A leader is only thinking about the firm, being firm-centric, what's best for us, what's best for us. Give the customer as little as possible to get what we want. Then it becomes a much more adversarial type relationship. It's a zero-sum game instead of saying from a growth mindset, how do we grow the pie? How do we make it better for them and for us? Jake, we've come to time, depressingly, because this has been a fascinating conversation. But um, could you just run through the five again? Because I want the listeners to pay attention, uh, because these are the superpowers of the top 4% salespeople as well. There's a reason why they're the top 4%. It's because they know how to be vulnerable. They know how to be courageous. They know how to play nicely with others and enlist their help. They know how to be accountable. But I'd like you to just run through them again. 
so that there is no equivocation or doubt in people's minds. And your objective for the next month is to work on one of these areas, okay? And please then come back and tell me what you've done. Tell Jay, comment on the podcast, comment on some of our posts as we uh, promote this, because it's really important that you adapt to the current environment. The context is going to get as rough as hell. If Kondratiev is right, 2024 is when the uh, crisis really kicks off, okay? And it's mirroring the 1920s and 1930s. And those of you who have any knowledge of history will remember that didn't turn out well. Okay, so we're going to be going through a period of massive turmoil, volatility, uncertainty, okay? I would not be surprised if we end up with civil strife and war, And if we look at what's going on between China and America, the election cycles and all of that, we need to be resilient. We need to be prepared and we need to work out what we do have control over, what we don't, what we're responsible for, what we're not. So we can start cutting that stuff out of our lives and narrow our focus on what we actually have real control over and what matters. And what matters, if I'm being perfectly blunt, are your customers and your people, not rules, playbooks, uh, your investment, uh, your investors. You need to have some honest conversations with them and talk about how they are going to help you to adapt and what they're not going to do to create the wrong type of pressure. Because if you put your sellers under pressure, the front of their brain, the prefrontal cortex, the clever bit switches off. You then put them in front of customers and you put them, uh, tell them to put the customer under pressure and you trigger the control center that triggers contempt and disgust. This is in your playbooks, ladies and gentlemen. This is what happens when you are a slave to rules. Don't be a slave to rules. So any final thoughts? Just to recap, one context matters. So you have to see things differently. You have to not think about transactional. It's not either this or that. It's both and thinking. And the third thing is about doing differently, which goes back to preparation, how we work together. The superpowers help you do all of those. The first one is being a present futurist. That goes to context. Second one is experience learner. It's about how you think. It's about what you know. It's about being curious. And that goes to both and thinking. When you think about being a prepared risk taker and a strategic executor goes to how you do the work, how you prepare for different scenarios, how you make decisions in the present that help you in the future versus hurt you. So that's really the execution side. And the accountable collaborator is how we work together, how we work across functions, we work across boundaries. And when we're doing it that way, we're prepared, we understand the context, we make better decisions, we're able to adjust and adapt, we're open-minded, we're more engaged, Customers get more value because we understand them. Employees are more engaged because of how they're treated and deliver more. The communities we're in benefit. And when all that happens, 
shareholders win. Absolutely. So it's that system and that regenerates and creates even more value as long as it's sustained. Fantastic. Jay, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Tell me, how can people get hold of you? They can reach me at j at jwiser.com. Yep. Second, find me on LinkedIn. If you do a search for Jay Weiser, I'm the first one that's going to come up. You'll see my podcasts, my webinars, uh, my articles. So please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to set up a complimentary chat. I'll learn more about you. You'll learn more about me, and we'll find out how we can help each of us be successful. I love your approach. This is so in line with um, my philosophy as well. Um, Jay Weiser, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a great discussion. And actually, I have one last question. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Jay, 23 years old, who knew everything was going to be immortal and uh, whatever. What one bit of advice would you give him that he'd have undoubtedly ignore, but would be useful for others? Well, I, I think what he'd ignore is you need to be patient. You need to listen. You need to ask questions. I think the 23-year-old me thought I knew a lot more than I knew. And it was about proving how smart I was. And I think now it's more about how can I help other people be as smart as they can be by right. asking those questions so right. that people see, think, and do differently. That's lovely. So on that note, I think we'll finish. Um, I'm minded of Oscar Wilde, um, who said, uh, when my father was 14, I couldn't believe how stupid and ignorant he was. And by the time I was 21, I couldn't believe how much he'd learned. I think the, the age gap may have jumped a little bit because uh, um, the life expectancy was a lot shorter back. Jay, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus County signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, and please go back, take notes, make sure that you start working on those five superpowers. If you're a seller, if you're a manager, or if you're a leader, they are relevant to you no matter what those roles are, because your job is to help people to get the best out of themselves and to accomplish their goals, their aspirations, and get the outcome they intend. If you do that with enough people, you get your needs met too. That's the law of compensation. We're primates. and We're social primates. We love to contribute. Tap into that in your people, and you will get so much more than trying to control them and limit them. Now, if you are looking to establish stronger sales pipeline, if you're looking to improve your performance, we've recently developed a sales aptitude test, which interestingly enough, tackles all five of those superpowers. And if you complete it, then I will put spend half an hour with you consulting, giving you feedback on what that report tells us and gives you specific ways that you can improve in the next 30 days. If you want to talk about coaching, we can talk about that as well, but we'd love it if you take the sales aptitude test. So there's a link in the blurb. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.